NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a guy with a reminder that here in the garage, we don't ask you where you're going, and we don't care where you've been. Here is the captain. All we care about is that you took a shower and you brushed your teeth, you filthy animals. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today in the garage, we are drinking Beauty and the Venom by our brilliant friends over at Tactical Brewing Company. Beauty and the Venom is a New England IPA with HBC 586 experimental hops, whatever that is, and Yakima Chief hops. It's as the name says, hazy, and of course, it's citrusy as well. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And let's give some praise and cheers to our good friends for helping us fill up the fridge. First up, shout out to Susan and Rio Vista. And a big We Like Your Jib goes to Holly in McKinney, Texas. And last but certainly not least, we have Allison Ghani from Ewing, New Jersey. Everyone we mentioned, well, they went to truecrimegarage.com and clicked on the pint glass. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run. If you'd like to support this show and get a little knowledge for the noggin, check out the one and only Nick Edwards' new book, the Delphi Murders, the quest to find the man on the bridge. You can order your copy wherever you get your books. You can go to Amazon.com and search Nick Edwards and it'll pop right up. And it helps support the show. And that is enough of the business. Thank you, Captain. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Thirty-two-year-old real estate broker Nikki Cleveland placed the following ad in her local paper, hoping the classified ad would lead to some interest in a property she was listing and hoping to sell. 
The ad ran on a Monday and read, North Yarmouth, swim, canoe, read and relax. Investigate this unusual three-quarter acre seasonal property with Royal River frontage, rustic three-room cabin with screened-in porch. Very secluded, but only two miles from Main Street. Owner financing available. Call Nikki Cleveland of Acres Associates. And then Nikki provided readers with two phone numbers. One, her office number. And two, her personal line. A few days later, Nikki agreed to meet with a potential buyer at the secluded property around two in the afternoon. She went alone. She vanished. Her car was found less than a mile from the property. This is True Crime Garage. Nikki Cleveland was a young realtor in Cumberland County, Maine. In early July of 1981, Nikki listed a secluded property for sale that included a rustic camp. She advertised the property for sale in the local papers with her phone number. One, a phone number at her employer's office, Acres Associates, and because it's 1981, and she does not want to run the risk of missing an opportunity to speak with a potential buyer, Nikki was courteous enough to list her home phone number as well. During the 4th of July weekend, her phone rang and her husband, Robert Cleveland, answered it. On the line was a male caller, and the male caller asked to speak with Nikki. Robert informed the man that Nikki was not home at the moment, and if the man wished, Robert would gladly take the caller's information and Nikki would get back to him. The man on the other end said he was interested in the secluded cottage property that Nikki had listed in the paper. He told Robert that there was no need for a message, that he would call back and speak with Nikki. The mail caller kept his word as he did call back. This was six days later on July 12th. And again, Nikki's husband, Robert, answered. Once again, Nikki was not available. Robert again offered to take down the man's information and have Nikki call him back. The man on the other end of the call said he was a writer passing through the area and he was interested in buying the North Yarmouth property, but he would, of course, need to see it first. He declined to give his name or information and once again said he would call back and speak with the listing agent, Nikki Cleveland. Later, it was discovered that on that same day, July 12th, a male caller also called Nikki's office inquiring about the property for sale. Later on that same day, Captain, we're still on the 12th here, the caller managed to get Nikki herself on the phone, and the two of them made arrangements to go and see the property on the following day, July 13th, with an appointment set for between 1 and 2 in the afternoon. Nikki was very excited at the possibility of selling the cottage rather quickly, and she told her husband, Robert, that she had an appointment the next day to show the property to the man who had called. The following day, Nikki borrowed her mother's station wagon so she could drive out to show the property to the man. To reach the listed property, one must walk or drive along a dirt road across the property of a one Mrs. Gay Hoyt. Mrs. Hoyt had erected a gate across the road. 
This is to prevent the road from becoming a public right-of-way. And both Hoyt and the owner of the listed property typically kept the gate closed. Mrs. Hoyt was in the habit of actually going out and checking people and making sure that only what she called were authorized people went down this road. So this road, Captain, it's built and it's there for these two property owners to use. The purpose of the gate is so that people aren't just randomly driving down this road. There's no reason for anybody to go down this road unless they are going to one of these two properties. So if you don't live there, you're not visiting there, you shouldn't be there. But is there anybody living at this property at the time? No. So we have Mrs. Hoyt who lives at her property. And then the property that's listed for sale is unoccupied at the time of July 1981. Now, around the appointed time, Nikki parked the station wagon that she borrowed from her mother near the gate and walked down the long dirt driveway. The neighbor, Mrs. Hoyt, witnessed this from her window. Mrs. Hoyt had several dogs, and they would alert her when someone would pull up to the gate. Mrs. Hoyt did not know Nikki by name, but noted the woman walking the long drive to the listed property that this woman was wearing a blue rain jacket. Later, Nikki's husband, Robert Cleveland, would tell police that the last time he saw his wife on that same day, she was wearing a blue rain jacket. So we know this is one and the same here. Mrs. Hoyt noticed that the woman was gone for a very long time, as she would later tell police. In fact, she never saw the woman come back out from the property. Instead, the next time her dogs got to barking, Mrs. Hoyt decided she would go outside and request to see the identification. She thought it would be the woman walking back to her car, the woman in her blue rain jacket. But to Mrs. Hoyt's surprise, it was not a woman on foot that got the attention of her dogs, but a blue-green car that was coming up the road rather quickly across Mrs. Hoyt's property. Mrs. Hoyt yelled at the car to stop, but it didn't. It didn't even slow down. As the vehicle passed, the driver, a male, turned his head, smiled, and waved hello to Mrs. Hoyt, and then sped off. So this male driver, he drives off, smiles, and waves, but Nikki's car that she was borrowing stays at the property by the gate. And in fact, Nikki's never seen alive again. She was reported missing by her family and the police were out searching for her. And the search was made public very quickly. Now, because the vehicle was left at the scene and a male driver was spotted driving away rather quickly, police openly feared the worst. They said that we are suspecting foul play in this woman's disappearance. Nikki was described in the papers as Caucasian, age 32, with long brown hair, and she wore glasses. Nikki's family agreed with the police's assessment. Within a day or two, Robert Cleveland told the newspaper reporters that he, too, suspected foul play because Nikki had never been gone for more than a couple of hours. So possibly there's foul play. And if there is foul play, then obviously our best eyewitness is Mrs. Hoyt. Yeah, the best lead the police will have will probably be this eyewitness. So Mrs. Hoyt says that she saw a man drive out of the property. Now she gave a vague, a rather vague description of the vehicle to police, basically just saying it, it was a blue-green vehicle. 
and it was moving rather quickly. But she did say she was able to focus in on the man who was driving the vehicle. And she said that the man appeared to be alone. She thought she might see the woman in the blue rain jacket with the man. But as far as she could tell, there was nobody in the vehicle with this man who waved to her. And Mrs. Hoyt described this man as someone in his late 20s or early 30s with a full mustache and bright white teeth. She said that he smiled and waved at her as he drove by. He was not wearing glasses and she could not recall the color of his hair. So police put together a sketch based off of this information from Mrs. Hoyt. And of course, they release it to the public, hoping that somebody in the public can lead them to this man so they can talk to him and ask about what happened to Nikki Cleveland. So just go over this timeline again so it's not confusing. Right. So we have Nikki who listed the property in early July. Her husband, Robert Cleveland, said that when the property was first listed, they received several calls. This was on or around July 6th. Robert believed that the man who called on the 6th and did not leave his name was the same man that called again on July 12th, once again not leaving his name or information. He says to police that he believes that same caller called back and spoke with Nikki again on the 12th, and the two of them arranged for an appointment on July 13th, the following day. So things are happening happening relatively quickly. They have Mrs. Hoyt as a possible eyewitness, and we also have Robert Cleveland, the husband, as a possible ear witness who says, I believe I spoke to the same man twice, and I believe that that man then got Nikki on the phone and made the proper arrangements. But as things stand on July 13th, Captain, Nikki is missing. The car is left at the scene, and the police are kind of stumped as to what could have happened to this woman or where she could be. Now, 10 days later, it was more bad news because there was really nothing going on with the case as far as any good leads to find Nikki Cleveland. There were reward offers that went out. There were photographs of Nikki that were published in the papers and put on the news channels, but none of this produced any useful leads to police. In fact, they even consulted with psychics and hypnotists very early on in this investigation. So the psychics and the hypnotists could come up with nothing as well. Now, as far as the hypnotists go, it's my understanding that the reason they were using a hypnotist was because they were hypnotizing Mrs. Hoyt, the eyewitness to see if there might be something else that she could recall about that day or about the driver or his vehicle. And none of this provided any additional information for them to work from. I'm just saying, I, I don't know if I trust myself being hypnotized. I, I couldn't be responsible for what I was going to say or my actions. All the dirty secrets mm. finally revealed. Yeah. Everybody's asking me when my book is coming out. Uh, my coloring book will be coming out in three weeks. Those sell really well. Uh-huh. The lead investigating agency on this missing persons case will be the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. And they were openly talking about how little they had to go on in this investigation. And in fact, the sheriff is quoted as saying 
the FBI can't get involved because we have nothing to give them right now. Then two days later, after the statement of, hey, we've reached out to psychics and hypnotists and they're coming up with nothing as well. We're now at July 25th. So she's been missing since the 13th. Police announced that they were in conversations with the Boxford police in Massachusetts. This is because the Boxford police reached out to them. This after reading about Nikki Cleveland's disappearance. That's because they had what they believed to be a similar case seven years prior. This is when a real estate broker, her name was Marsha Nolan, age 22, she was killed July 24th, 1974 at one of those model home sites. They wanted to compare notes with Cumberland County Sheriff's Department to see if there were any similarities in the two cases. Maybe they were connected, maybe the same perpetrator involved in both cases. Well, it doesn't take a genius here in the garage to know if the last time she's seen is showing a house and her vehicles at that house. That's the person you want to be looking for is the person she showed that house to. Exactly. And in the defense of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. They were on drugs at the time. Well, Nikki's case, in my opinion, I, I think you have all kinds of complications, troubling complications to your investigation. Simply put, it's you have no body. You have no crime scene. We talk about this often here in the garage. There's typically more than one crime scene. And here you're missing one of those crime scenes. And in fact, you're looking for this person at this time when you have no proof that she is actually dead. And unfortunately, five days later, July 30th, that's going to change. Because a man working on a road in a wooded area, this is about 60 miles away. Six zero miles from the property that Nikki listed for sale. This man working discovers a body. The man said he was working in the area when a strange odor led him into the wooded area and to the horrific find. And of course, he calls the police immediately. And it wouldn't take long before they would identify the body to be that of the missing 32-year-old woman, Nikki Cleveland. Yeah, you know, we've covered so many cases Hundreds and hundreds. And you hear these stories of, you know, Joel Rifkin comes to mind when he's driving his car and there's a police officer comes behind him and starts smelling this odor. And that odor, if you ever smelled it, you'll never forget that. But I couldn't imagine smelling that out in the in a wooded area because I'd be... I'll just tell you, I'd be a little chicken shit to to follow that scent. I've never smelled that odor, so I don't know if it's the same. But where I live, especially this time of year, Captain, in the spring, I get a lot of dead animals near my property. And so I discard of them, and I know that smell. And I've followed that smell to get the carcass off of my property. So I understand what this uh this man But 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 think about this. This is what law enforcement knows. She was talking to somebody. She goes to show a property. So of course we want to talk to this individual. 
and we don't have a lot of information coming from the eyewitness, so much so that we're going to try to hypnotize her to get more information. But what information do we have from her? The guy pulls out. He waves and smiles. Blue-green car, mustache, and bright teeth, as she said. No glasses, and she couldn't recall the color of his hair. And up until finding Nikki Cleveland in this wooded area 60 miles away, if you're an investigator, you got a couple of things that, that are nagging at you. One, you have this eyewitness who cannot confirm 100% that it was Nikki Cleveland that she saw walking that day. Right. Other than her husband saying, last time I saw her, she's wearing a blue raincoat. And Mrs. Hoyt, the neighbor, saying, the woman I saw was wearing a blue raincoat. She walked to the property and I never saw her leave and her vehicle never left. And then your other piece that you're working from is the husband, Robert Cleveland, who says, yeah, I talked to a guy on the phone a couple of times who refused to leave any information with me. I believe it's the same guy that talked to Nikki and that scheduled the appointment to meet her on the 13th. I, I tell you, Captain, I think the investigators on this one, if I had to wager a Franklin, I would bet that there were some at the sheriff's department that were concerned about the husband. Oh, absolutely. You have to look at the inner circle, and and he could be making up this caller for all you know. But I do want to just point out that you've been wagering a lot of Franklins since you wrote a book. And I'm winning, baby. I'm always <laughs> winning. Now, when they find the body, it wouldn't take them long to identify that to be that of the missing woman, Nikki Cleveland. Right. But initially, all police were saying is that she had been shot in the head more than once, and the body had been there for some time, at least 10 days. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, 
designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
All right, we are back. Cheers, mates, and a big cheers to first-time author. You know him. You love him. He's number one in your hearts and number two in your farts. The Colonel. Cheers to you, mate. Let me be the first to wish all of our beautiful listeners a wonderful and happy Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you all. The police notified Nikki's parents immediately after she was identified. They notified her attorney as well, and then her husband, and then telling the newspapers, quote, we had an awfully hard time finding the husband. We learned that the body was positively identified using dental records. Police also announced that this would be a joint effort to solve this homicide case. Investigating the case, we would have three officers from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. We would have the state police joining in on the investigation. They were dedicating two officers, and the Attorney General's office was investigating as well. They did say that they had some leads, but obviously they say we can't say what our leads are. Some additional details were released to the public in the coming days, and they were as follows. The body found was in South Berwick. She had been bound, gagged with her own panties, and five inches of tape wrapped around her mouth. Hmm. She was shot twice in the head, and they confirmed that she had been dead for two weeks, but she had been alive when she arrived to the woods with the killer. Because they're saying the evidence is telling the investigators that, unfortunately, our victim was killed where she was found. She was executed in those woods. But then we get this bit of news. This here is is real bizarre, and I'm going to read... I'm going to read the exact article as it were back in 1981. The headline is two deaths puzzling the deaths of Portland real estate broker, Nikki Cleveland and an unidentified woman whose body was discovered August 9th in unity, New Hampshire are baffling investigators in both States. Remember Nikki is in Portland, Maine. We have an unidentified body that was found about nine days later after Nikki was discovered. And the article goes on to say that the cases are not related, they say. But in both instances, an anonymous telephone caller claimed to have information about the deaths. But neither call provided police with any useful information. The unidentified body was clothed in a white sleeveless blouse with a large rose-colored butterfly pattern and bulky maroon sweater. Mm-hmm. Two copper rings were found on the body's right hand. Mrs. Cleveland disappeared July 13th and her body was found near new, the New Hampshire border dead from gunshot wounds. This is rather intriguing, but also incredibly infuriating at the same time. You think, right? So you have a caller, a person, an anonymous caller calls in, in both cases not really providing information, but says that they have information. Well, and we essentially have two anonymous or maybe the same anonymous client. Show me these houses. And then, like you said, you have uh, eyewitness. And if she's correct, Mr. Bright Teeth is smiling and waving and could have a body in his car. Or 
a live victim in his car. And then this anonymous person is now anonymously calling the police. Well, and I believe, Captain, what we're dealing with here is two separate callers, potentially, because the way that some of the other reports read makes it sound like in Nikki Cleveland's case that the caller was saying, I have information about the the murder. I can provide you with information that will help your investigation, but I'm, I want you to pay me for my information. I will give you the information for a price. That is not reported in the unidentified woman's case of the body that was found nine days later. I mean, what a salty bag of shit. Right. And the, the other thing, too, is note that the article clearly states that law enforcement is telling reporters they don't, even though we have a similar situation in both cases, we don't have anything and we don't have any reason to believe that the two cases are related. So I'm on your side here, Captain. I cannot stand when, and, and for the life of me, never will understand why somebody would want to interfere with an investigation if it wasn't to cover their own tracks. I mean, right. remember the, we've seen it in other cases. And in one case that we've not covered that we saw it infuriated the hell out of me was the Boston marathon bombing police. In that case, were asking the public for help. They needed the public to look at images that they were putting out and, and, and send images Anybody that was at the marathon that day taking pictures, using your smartphone, send us your pictures so we can use these to try to identify the bomber. People sent people on the internet were photoshopping bags to appear to have been abandoned in crowds of people and sending them to the FBI and to the police. Right. Okay. When, when your fellow man needs you the most, you step in and, and interfere with an investigation. Yeah. Ridiculous. I mean, take a wild guess. If you had to guesstimate how many individuals have emailed you in the last seven years and said, I have some information about a case. Would you like to know about it? Or I have a possible suspect or a possible lead. One or two a week when we do an unsolved case. And it's like, don't, don't tell us about it. Tell law enforcement. Well, don't slam the door shut because I, I'm. Please well, no, tell I mean, somebody. Please tell somebody. <laughs> right. and if you prefer to tell us, we are here to to listen. But the, but there's been several that won't. Okay, s- send me the information. I'm interested. Email me the information. Now, I, I'll tell you if it's on the phone. And it's like, look, if you're not willing to email the information, then at least send it to law enforcement. Later, the police would be able to identify the body that was found August 9th. And we would learn that that body was that of Mary Elizabeth Critchley. Now, some of our listeners are recognizing that name. And that's because she is one of the victims or believed to be one of the victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer. And we covered that case in episodes 636 and 637 on your true crime garage radio dial. One thing that's before we get too far into the weeds here, captain, one thing of interest to me that we didn't cover and did not uncover when looking for information in that case was this anonymous phone call. 
in Critchley's case. Could it have been something? Could it have been from the serial killer himself? We know right. that they like to communicate with with law enforcement or with the media at times. And so that that's a real interesting angle in that case. That's also a case that has a lot of confusion. They're not certain what victims are connected, what victims are tied together. But wouldn't you love to hear a recording of that conversation? You know that I would, Captain. Because that is going to tell you which way to lean, is the demeanor of the caller. Well, and in Critchley's case, it's believed that she was hitchhiking at the time because she was last seen July 25th, 1981, near the exit of the Massachusetts Turnpike in Farmingham, Massachusetts. Mary was dropped off at that location by a friend saying that she was going to hitchhike to Waterbury, Vermont, where she lived with a friend. Mary was attending classes at the University of Vermont at the time of her death. Keep in mind, though, she's later found in Unity, New Hampshire, the medical examiner unable to determine the cause of death, and they state based off of the condition of the body and the decomposition that took place with the body, they do rule it a homicide, but we have our victim, Nikki Cleveland, who's found not terribly far from the New Hampshire state line. And so at the time, I'm sure they were looking into this and in, in confirming if they had any reason to believe that the two were connected. Now, this case, Captain, like you said, you're trying to figure out who was that caller. That caller is probably our best lead in this case. And police spent a lot of time trying to figure out who that caller was. Now, we would get updates on Nikki Cleveland's murder case once or twice a year for the next five years. And in fact, at one point, the police were asked if the case was closed due to no new information, no no new leads. Right. If the case was cold enough that they would refer to it as a closed case. And they, in fact, said, yes, this case is, is closed. We got nowhere to go with this thing. So it was sitting there on the shelf looking like it wasn't going to be solved. And in fact, we have information that came out that police said, you know, we ain't talking. The case is closed. There's nothing to talk about. But that, my friends, is all going to change in June of 1986. June 28th, 1986, the Sun Journal newspaper has a headline on page two that says Nikki Cleveland homicide case reopened. And the article states that the 1981 gunshot slaying of Portland real estate agent, Nikki Cleveland is getting renewed attention from homicide investigators, but they are keeping mum about new developments that placed the case back on the front burner. The assistant attorney general, this is Thomas Goodwin said to the paper, Regarding the case, it's very open. The case is very open. We've just had some developments recently on the case, they're stating. Now, in the years since the slaying, officials did disclose that the victim's hands had been tied and one ranking state prosecutor familiar with the case described the killing as a cold-blooded execution. So... Our victim, her hands were tied. And keep in mind, we have this tape 
this wrapping of five inches worth of tape over her mouth. And to be clear, it's not like somebody ripped off a piece of tape and put it over her mouth. They gagged her with her underwear and then wrapped the tape around her, her head to quiet her. And if the man in the vehicle is the person responsible here, we have Mrs. Hoyt who says she never, she didn't see anybody in the vehicle with him. So he must've kidnapped Nikki Cleveland from the house. I guess placing her in the trunk of his car to transport her because we do know that she was alive when they entered that wooded area. Yeah. And then the sick son of a bitch just smiles and waves and on his way. 60, what do you say? 60 miles down the road, 60 miles down the road to dump the body. But then you wonder if he's not, if there's no gloves, is there fingerprints on that tape? Can you pull DNA from that tape? Well, what they end up doing, this is a weird case because the statement that the case is closed and that they have no information, they got nothing to go on for all of these years. What we find out in the end is that they had traced the phone calls. They were, they, they were able to get the phone number where those calls came from that went to her office asking about the property and to her home. Right. But don't you think it's highly irresponsible to say the case is closed? I agree 100%. Here's where I think the problem is. You're the problem. Me. Uh, The problem, I think, with this case is it's the old, and we've heard this more than a dozen times, Captain. We know who did it. We just don't have enough proof for an arrest and a conviction. And Well, and you might have enough to arrest them, but that doesn't mean that once you go to trial, you're going to have anything. The phone records told police that the phone calls came from the home of a one William Meskis. William Meskis was apprehended and arrested July 26, 1982. So just a couple days shy of one year from finding Nikki Cleveland's body. Right. But William Meskis was arrested in North Carolina. Now, he was arrested on outstanding charges of rape, kidnapping, robbery, and burglary, all for incidents that took place in New Hampshire. And earlier and prior to July 1982, police caught up with him at the home of one of his friends in North Carolina. Shameful that this guy has any friends at all. Yeah, I wish I had one friend. The details of those charges, Captain, the report states that William Meskis knocked on a door and a woman answered, and then he pulls a knife on her and orders her to remove her clothes. So he goes in with the the attempt to rape this woman in her home at knife point. Well, <laughs> Meskis... It's going to be a bad day for William Meskis, okay? Because the woman was hosting a party. And while she's alone when he enters the home, people that are attending the party start to show up. Thankfully, and they and they catch this man in the act. And later, Meskis would tell a cellmate, quote, people started coming from everywhere, men, women, and children. It was like a damn Marx Brother movie. Yeah, well, thank God people didn't show up fashionably late. So he's arrested, 
And he was also wanted in the great state of Massachusetts for rape and robbery charges as well. Based off of this information and the phone calls, it's looking like he's going to be wanted in the state of Maine as well. But you know that some Karen is all upset because she made a very nice ambrosia salad that's not that nobody ate because there was an attack happening. New Hampshire authorities figured out that William Meskis mm-hmm. was actually a one Joel Bill Kalk wanted in seven different towns and counties in California for a long string of rapes and robberies. But New Hampshire wasn't going to just hand this man over to California law enforcement because they were the ones that caught him. And keep in mind, he's facing charges in their state. Well, I've said it once on the show. I'll say it again. I, I, I do not like it's a It's a red flag. They're normally horrible people that use fake names. But guess what? Joel Bill Cock, you are a piece of shit. So just to keep this neat and tidy here, Captain, Mm-hmm. police traced phone calls from Nikki and Robert Cleveland's home and calls to the acres realty office on the dates when Mr. Robert Cleveland said the man had called and asked to speak with Nikki about the property that she was listed in, in selling. They find her vehicle there at that property. They trace the calls to a home in Booth Bay Harbor. The man who lived there was this William John Meskis, a.k.a. Joel Bill Cock. But investigators in Maine in 1981 didn't know that that was a fake name. They didn't know who this William John Meskis really was. Right. So Joel Bill Cock had been living in the state of Maine since May of 1981. Think about that. He's May of 1981. And then this murder takes place in July. And we know that he's wanted for prior rapes and kidnapping. Whatever is driving this guy, he can't keep it at bay because he's only in May. He's already he, he's already on the on the run, and he's only in Maine for a couple months before he abducts and kills this poor woman. Right. So he's living in Maine since May of 1981 as William Meskis. He once he's there, he establishes himself in, in the co- community rather quickly. Uh, he had a wife and son in California and he sends for them to come and join him in Maine. He's working as electrician at Luke's Boatyard in East Booth Bay Harbor. And as a mater D at a local restaurant, he also worked for a period of time as a tennis pro at the Booth Bay Harbor YMCA. He coached little league. The people who knew him in Maine said he was a very outgoing and very friendly guy. He seemed to be very smart. One woman, a Barbara Schuler, said he was, quote, friendly and easy to get along with. Now, little did they know that he was living under this fake name of William John Meskis, right. a name that he stole from a headstone of a child they had passed away in 1956. Well, we've seen this to be a common practice, whether, and they don't have to be a criminal. Somebody could want to go missing and they assume a, a identity of a child that has already passed away. I've heard more than one person tell me, Nick, your show gives more tips 
of the trade to criminals than any show out there. Shame on you. And you know what? They might be right, but we're just telling it like it is. And back in the day, in the 80s and the 70s, it was so common that when people would steal an identity or create an identity for themselves, they would just go to a graveyard. They would go to a cemetery and pick a name off of off of a headstone. And that's what this Joel Bill Cock did when he needed to become somebody else because he's on the run from California authorities because he's out committing a bunch of rapes in California. Yeah, but we also give, I think, pretty good tips on how to survive or things that you can do to make sure that your killer is caught. And how to catch the bastards. Yeah, and here's a tip for all you criminals that are listening. Turn yourself in. If you do, I'll send you a free shirt. A free shirt from the garage store. Curtis, I'll even sign it. Turn yourself in. The more you know. So one thing we do know here, Captain, is that it clearly took police in Maine several years to put together their case against this man. Now, there was probably not a big rush here because he's already incarcerated at the time. So they knew where to find him if they ever built that case against him. Remember, he was picked up the following year in North Carolina. So he was only free of this murder and other charges for less than a year. Police said that he was a suspect for a long time before the formal charges were brought against him. And here is the evidence that they said that they had against this individual. The bullets removed from Nikki's skull were traced back to a gun that Joel Cock had admitted to a detective that he had stolen from a resident that he burgled in California. Mm -hmm. And that he told the detective in a conversation that he had used the gun thereafter in the course of quote, criminal activity later. When this thing goes to trial all the years later, a man named Roy Denny testified that his 22 caliber Smith and Wesson had been stolen from his Union City home back in 1980. Maine State Police Detective Richard Arnold testified that the bullets that killed Nikki were compared to bullets that were fired at a shooting range before the gun was stolen. And both sets of bullets were, quote, fired from one particular firearm and no other, according to the state detective. What happened here is somehow they pieced together this information that the caller is this other guy who's arrested a year later. Once they figure out who this other guy is and all the charges he's he was wanted for in California, he clearly skipped out on California, went from one corner of the country all the way to the furthest corner away in Maine to hide out, but doesn't do a damn good job of it because he, he sends for his wife and kid, which is a little weird. You would think that the California authorities would have picked up on that. But he's on the run, and they they finally start piecing this stuff together. This guy that gets picked up in North Carolina, he's this he he's going by an assumed name, a name that he stole. And by the way, he's wanted for all of these robberies, uh, thefts, and rapes 
in California. Well, it's through this interviewing process. He's he's admitting to his crimes in New Hampshire. Right. So he admits to all of these crimes in New Hampshire. Well, California detectives are like, well, if he's talking now and they have him in custody, we need to get there and talk to him because what they were doing, they were sending questions to the detectives in New in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And Joel Kalk is not admitting to anything that he was charged with in California to the New Hampshire detectives. So detectives in California are like, we need to get out to New Hampshire to talk to this guy. Yeah, very strange behavior. And, and But maybe it's as simple as he felt more connected to him because they're in person. So like you said, law enforcement needs to get out there and see if they can make a connection with him. And maybe he will admit to these other crimes because somebody that's this sick and then we know moved. And like you said, the small time period of when he moved to when crimes start happening again, this guy definitely has a history. Well, and it's not just this phone call or the phone calls that connect him to the murder. It's more so the gun. And here's what ends up happening. California law enforcement. They're like, yeah, we're not going to go to the expense of sending a detective out to New Hampshire to question this guy. That's going to be locked up in New Hampshire, even though he's admitting to New Hampshire crimes. We're not going to we're not going to go to the trouble. So the lead detective in those rape cases decides, you know what? I'm going to take a vacation. I'm take a couple days off from the job. I'm going to fly out to the great state of New Hampshire and arrange with authorities there to sit in and talk to Mr. Joel. And while he's there, he gets this Joel Calk to admit that he stole this gun from a resident in California and he used it for other criminal activity. That is the connecting piece to the murder. And so the detectives from Maine armed with this information, they keep going to this shooting range that the gun owner used to go to. They need to find bullets to try to match them to the bullets found in the victim. Because they have the crime scene, now they have the body, they have no murder weapon. And it's through the ballistic test and finding those old spent shells, and I'm sorry, the, it's through the ballistics of those bullets that were fired at the gun range that they were able to determine, yes, that gun that this guy admitted to stealing and using in other criminal activity is our murder weapon. Join us here back in the garage, same bat time, same bat channel. Love you. Thanks for the support. Thanks for telling a friend. Until tomorrow. Be good, be kind, and don't litter.
I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.